Andrew Dowdy back on the High Motor Podcast. Thanks for dropping by and excited about today's show. Wasn't expecting to talk about another head coaching vacancy until that college basketball carousel starts spinning here in a month or so, but we do have one in college football. So I'm going to have Graham Couch of the Lansing State Journal on to break down this Michigan State situation with Mark D'Antonio resigning this week, the candidates and whatnot. And then after that, it's going to be David Shaw, Stanford head coach, just got off the phone with him, going to play that. Okay, Graham Couch of the Lansing State Journal. And Graham, we're sitting here first week of February suddenly with a major college football coaching change. And you said in, in your live chat online, I think that was on Wednesday morning, you don't believe that D'Antonio knew before the season that he was going to be stepping down at some point. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, I believe D'Antonio said that he wrote the resignation letter last week and then told everybody this week. Do you have any idea when he actually knew he was stepping down and if anyone else knew he was stepping down before this week? Yeah, I mean, I, I think within the last couple weeks, there were conversations about you know what he wanted to do. Um, and so there were some inklings from a few people in the department that this could happen. But in terms of it actually happening, um, it, you know, I think a lot of it really did come down to the last few days and week and, and, and making sure this is what he wanted. And, and uh, because his staff did not know until he, uh, until the day he, he retired. And um, I, I just, he looked like a man who was uh, at peace with things and, uh, really looking forward to the season, thought he had a squad that could compete and contend, and maybe he'd be able to leave the program to one of his guys. And when that didn't happen, as the season kind of got off the rails, I, I think there came a point where he didn't want to leave it like this. And so that that's, you know, and he seemed like he wanted to be in the fight. And I, certainly as of early January, when he called his staff back from vacation and they, uh, um, you know, told them sort of the plan is for the future to went into that. I think he was planning to come back, and and I think as he got further away from the season and into the grind of the off season, uh, I, I think he realized he just didn't have it in him. So we're talking here uh, pretty early on Thursday morning. So a lot of this may change in the coming hours and days, depending on uh, when you guys are listening to this. But but as of now, I mean, we, we've heard Pat Narduzzi's name thrown out there. He seemed to refute any sort of reports with with that video last night. Um, Luke Fickle's name has been thrown out there. As of right now, who are the names that we need to seriously watch? Yeah, I mean, Fickle seems like the one that they're, they're zeroed in on from the beginning. Um, and that seems like sort of a fit just based on uh, what they're looking for in their criteria and what that job would probably be for him and his roots and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I don't entirely know because I think there is going to be, I mean, you hear names like Pat Shermer and things like that. I, I don't, I don't know that it, that that's all that serious, but what we don't know is who's reaching out to them. Um, and, and I do think there will be at least one person somewhere that we're, we're not really aware of it at the time it happens. It's sort of unexpected because what they have right now, in some ways it's, it's, it's not great timing. In other ways, it's perhaps beneficial timing is they've got the market all for themselves. They, they are the market. And, and so if you're a coach anywhere right now, who's not happy with your situation and was thinking about a move, a coordinator in the NFL who'd like this opportunity or anything like that, this is the job and it gives you a chance to examine it. Whereas if you think about it, if this happens on Thanksgiving weekend, when there are several openings and the chaos of all of that, and it, it's a little different. And, and, and Michigan State is a, you know, I think it's a top 25 job. It's 
it's one of the halves in college football. It's not a top 10 gig. It's, but it's a, it's a place that, that makes quite a bit of money where football is important and uh, where you can, you can win and uh, win at a fairly high level if you do it right. And so I, I think there will be uh, interest from people maybe we aren't really aware of, and it may take you know a long time to know they were even interested if they don't wind up as the coach. You said who's making those phone calls, and there have been some rumblings that maybe Tom Izzo could be involved. Is Tom Izzo making phone calls? Is Mark D'Antonio making phone calls? Yeah, Reedman's. Uh, I mean, that's a good. I mean, he's the the lead guy, but there are others. I mean, I don't know how uh, involved D'Antonio will be. I, I, Izzo will be. Um, he was last time. You know, he he's in the middle of the season now, so you know, just got. Uh, you know, Michigan State just lost on Tuesday night, the, the night that D'Antonio uh, announced that they play Michigan on the road Saturday. Then they're at Illinois next Tuesday. I mean, it's not a, a time that he's got all the time in the world to be in meetings and making calls, but I, I think he will be uh, influential in the process a little bit. Um, and they do need to reach out to me, to guys like Nick Saban and Urban Meyer, and, and do their due diligence on – and I'm not just talking about asking they want the job. That's very unlikely. What I mean is, you know, when you're doing your due diligence on Luke Fickle, you ought to have a conversation with Urban Meyer. Uh, and you ought to have a conversation with everybody he's worked with. But but when you're talking to guys of that ilk, who else have they worked with? Who deserves a shot? Um, you know, who, who is somebody they ought to be considering? Because these, these are hard jobs to get. There are many of them. There are a lot of great coaches that never get these opportunities. And if you're Michigan State, you really get – very few shots at this, and very few times in history have you done it well. And um, so, but the one thing that Antonio did for them, I believe, and this is why I think Fickle is such a uh, a candidate that they're they're eyeing so quickly, is he he showed them what a fit looks like, and how important that is. I mean, John L. Smith is not a bad football coach; he just was not a fit at Michigan State, and and so that that's really important, and and. Uh, um, I, th- I think when you look at Fickle and, and you look at what they're looking for, that that's why that is such a, a name that people zeroed it on. Who is, is behind Fickle? I mean, you, you've spent most of the time here talking about him, and he seems to be getting most of the play. And from myself at 10,000 feet, it doesn't seem like anybody actually is really close now that Narduzzi seems to have officially eliminated himself. I mean, who who's behind him that, I mean, you speculate on Pat Shermer, but is there anybody that that's obvious behind Luke Fickle if they – can't get him or ultimately don't want him for whatever reason that could get this job realistically? Yeah, I don't know. And that's a really good question. From people I've talked I mean, I've heard the name Fickle is not just the name that's been bantered about. I mean, I've heard Fickle from uh, people inside the administration that that's a legitimate person, that there is there is definitely with interest and uh, there's been, you know, discussions and I think contact and that sort of uh, that sort of thing. You know, but you hear names like you know the idea of Craig Bowl, and I don't, I don't think that's legitimate. I, I, there, you hear, I don't think to me Pat Shermer would really surprise me. I don't, I just, I mean, maybe he's interested or whatnot. But and, and you hear them talking about uh, you know a long shot candidate, a, a guy that would be sort of a, 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 an interesting uh, consideration, and Robert Salah, you know, the the Forty Niners defensive coordinator who's grew up a Michigan State fan, is from Dearborn, and that sort of stuff, and obviously is right now in a, in a position where he's a high profile guy and would be an intriguing hire, but is he a fit? Is he, does he, you know, does he want to be in college football? Would he be good? Um, those are things you just, you don't know. And uh, it's been hard to get a feel from in the last 
20 hours really where they're where they're looking beyond that and uh it's one of the reasons a lot of people think fickle will happen it'll happen quickly that he's their guy and that's who they're they're going after if he decides not to do it and the thing about fickle is while michigan state is a uh, step up it is not a um i mean he he's got a great recruiting class uh it's cincinnati coming in it doesn't look like that's falling apart if he wants to he's 46 years old you know, he could coach there a couple more years, and uh, if Michigan State to him wasn't the ideal job, not take this and not make this move now. And so, um, I, I and the thing about the timing that's also very interesting is it came right before the second signing period. So you put coaches in weird spots to have to react to it. A guy like Matt Campbell at Iowa State, who people had speculated would be the sort of guy they obviously wanted, and and I don't know that. Um, you know, the Michigan State is enough of a, a step up from a from another Power Five job where where football is important, even if it's a better gig than Iowa State. Um, but if he, you know, he was forced basically to react to it quickly because these guys had signing day press conferences and they had media obligations right away, and that that was the one thing about the timing that really put them in a spot is there was uh, it forced them to sort of be on the record on stuff. And the coaches have lied before and decided they wanted to do something. Um, but I, I think that did, it was certainly, I think with, with uh, Narduzzi, that made things interesting and a little awkward. And, and uh, I do wonder if this is a year from now. Narduzzi has a, a good team coming back that he's excited about and um, I think wants to coach. But if it was a year from now, would it be different? If the timing was different, maybe. And is that, yeah, and and how much does um, does he realize he wasn't their top candidate, or because I I think Narduzzi it would have been um, when well, you talk about fit, one of the guys that you're really looking for. What what you want? I mean, D'Antonio did at Michigan State what nobody's ever done, and that there's something to that. Like Narduzzi was part of that. He was eight years part of that, so he understands why it worked, what happened, the challenges at MSU. The things that can um, be, you know, that can go wrong there, the administration, the, where the shortcomings are, and what D'Antonio didn't do well, and what he did well. And so Narduzzi, there's an argument that you get sort of the best of D'Antonio with Narduzzi, and yet you get a little bit different personality and priority and some things, and maybe that's the sort of uh, person you want. And, and what's interesting also about this is a guy that I think would have been in play had last year gone differently is a Harlan Barnett, who was the defensive coordinator at Florida state who had been on D'Antonio's staff. Who I think D'Antonio really was hoping would wind up um, being the guy. And, you know, obviously that wound up being a disaster at Florida state. And that now becomes a, if that, if he was a consideration, a, a tough sell to people. And um, they, they do need energy. They need, they need somebody who reinvigorates the fan base. They need somebody who's a smart hire. And, and, and I think somebody who's, who's been a head coach and, and, and done it a little bit is, is, is probably important. Graham, one more thing for you. Regarding that timing, is there any chance that that we're sitting here February and they say, you know what, let's promote from within, let's revisit this in nine months, let's put a placeholder in there. We're not going to tell people it's a placeholder, but you know, we're going to hire a Tressler, Salem, or whoever, and then we're going to do this again in nine months. Any chance that that happens? I mean, I don't want to say no chance. It just that, that to me would be an awful decision, and I think they're smarter than that. That, that said... Um, there have been some decisions, including the way Beekman got the job as athletic director that would <laughs> lead you to believe that sort of thing could happen. Um, 
But to me, that when I read the tea leaves on Beekman, I think he understands how essential this hire is, what they're looking for. The way he spoke about a guy like Mike Tressel didn't lead me to believe that he viewed Tressel as a, as a serious candidate. Uh, I could be wrong on that. And again, you know, the way things have unfolded, I, it, they know they've got an issue with season tickets next year if they don't make a decent hire here. And I, you hire, if you hire within that staff, you know, I, I just, I don't, boy, you would, I think that would be a, a pretty sizable mistake. And, and in college football, if, if you hire an interim coach or somebody is perceived as a, a one-year stopgap, the, the the momentum you lose or, or the momentum you don't have if you try to build in recruiting is just is, is really difficult and uh, I just don't think Michigan State can afford that. Graham Couch of the Lansing State Journal online at lansingstatejournal.com on Twitter at Graham underscore Couch for those search updates. Hey Graham, really appreciate the time. Hope uh, hope all goes well with the search for you. Thanks a lot. Anytime. Take care. Big thanks to David Shaw, Stanford head coach, for dropping by the show and right after the second National Signing Day on Wednesday. We're talking here a little bit quieter than years past. Are you happy with how that early signing period has worked? Do you have any issues with it, any tweaks you want to see, or you love it thus far? Love is a strong word. Um, I think we've adjusted to it. Uh, I, I have an issue with constantly pushing this thing earlier and earlier. Uh, we have a lot of young people that are 16, 17 years old, and they change their mind, and, and they, they change and they grow during this process. So I, I still try to resist this thing happening earlier and earlier, but um, we at Stanford has, have learned how to do this a, a better way, and we get to these young people earlier because yeah, we're talking about taking AP courses. We're talking about SAT scores and, and, and all the things that maybe not everybody in America is talking about. But we've been able to adjust and, and still sign the majority of our class in that first signing period. Now, from some information that 24-7 Sports puts out on offers, uh, your program routinely makes among the lowest in college football lower than 100 offers per year. What's your philosophy behind those limited offers compared to uh, some peer institutions? Well, to be blunt, um, we have high academic um, uh, bear, uh, bars here that our people need to reach. I don't call them restrictions. I call them it's a bar. It's a high bar. And there are not a lot of people in America that can get into Stanford. That's just the bottom line. So we're not going to just approach it as football coaches and offer all the great players we see. Uh, we want confirmation on grades. We want to see transcripts. We want to see test scores. Um, and so for me, our offers need to be real. Um, so if I offer a young man, that means they're academically where we need them to be. Maybe need a little bit of work to do. Um, but that's a real offer as opposed to offering 150, 200, 300 uh, young people and just hoping that somebody commits. That's not how we operate. We operate in, in a more intimate setting to where we're going to offer you a scholarship and talk you through this entire process and talk to you about your grades and about your, 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 uh, what classes you're taking and what level those classes are and how, what kind of a major you want to do at Stanford. Like those are the, that, that's how we recruit that may be so different than other people where some people recruit, they don't really talk much about the academics. They want you to graduate and want you to do well, but they're more selling you just on the football. We're selling the football and the school and the life after Stanford. And you said you don't see them as restrictions. Do you ever run into any situations where, where a, a recruit or their parents or somebody might see it as a restriction or does everybody kind of see it how you just described it as as a bar more than a restriction? Uh, well, there's two two things in that question. One is the people that we're recruiting, 
Um, sometimes it's it's a little it's a little off-putting initially because we tell them how much we like them, but we haven't offered. And sometimes you're talking to a young person that has 25 offers, and sometimes we have to educate them and say, "You, we don't think you have 25 offers. You have probably seven to ten, and those other people are offering you because they're offering a bunch of people, and they can't take all the people that they're offering. So as we talk them through that process, we let them know that at least our, our process is an honest process. It's an upfront up, uh, process. We'll, we offer you when we have a spot for you. If we don't have a spot for you, then we don't offer you, but we continue to recruit you. And like I said, that's off-putting at times in the beginning. But once we talk them through it and they go back sometimes look at their other offers and say, wow, man, they offer me, but they also told me I can't commit. So is that really an offer? Um, and the other side is, is people on the outside that, are recruiting against us. They don't understand our process. Um, sometimes they think there's funny business going on. And, and for us, we try to be as open and honest and straightforward as possible. We offer the guys that we think can get into school. And we offer the guys that will, will take this path with us as taking these difficult classes, the upper level AP classes, um, and, and score high enough on the test. So um, I'm very comfortable with where we are. And I want to say, the guys, uh, we've had seven top 25 classes, I believe, uh, during my tenure, um, which is unheard of here at Stanford. Um, so I think we've been able to find those guys that fit the profile of being a great student and a great athlete. And then looking at that tenure now, you know, well, I guess about a decade, going going way back when you left the NFL for San Diego to join Jim Harbaugh's staff, well, about 14, 15 years ago now, how did that conversation go? I mean, was this a job that you sought out? Was it something that he contacted you and sold you on? How did that conversation go now back in, I think it was 2006? So when I went down to San Diego, I didn't know Coach Harbaugh at all, and um, we had a couple of mutual friends. He he came to the Oakland Raiders after I left the Oakland Raiders. So all those guys we knew in common. A good friend of mine, Johnny Morton, who's back with the Raiders now, was with Coach Harbaugh in 2005 down at the University of San Diego. He left and that job was open. So I went down there and took that job. And same offense, same philosophy. We got along really well. And, um, you know, I actually was thinking about going back to the NFL. And Coach Harbaugh was, was looking to, to take a bigger job on. And um, none of the other jobs seemed appealing to me to follow him to those jobs. I was really going back to the NFL until he said that he got a Stanford interview. And being a Stanford alum and, and just thinking about the opportunity of coming back to this unbelievable place uh, to work, that's why I told him, I said, if you get the Stanford head job, I'm with you all the way. And um, thankfully, he was able to um, get hired at Stanford and came and brought me on as the offense coordinator. So you said you were you were close to going back to the NFL over that time since you've been back at Stanford. I mean, you got to know that that people bring up your name for the NFL, whether it's substantiated or not. It's it is there. It seems like annually that your name gets brought up. Have you ever been close to to entertain or even going to the NFL over the last decade or so? Never. Um, I've I've never interviewed for a job. My name comes up all the time, but I've never taken an interview. I've never. Um, talk to any of these schools, my or any of these uh, NFL franchises. My my agent um, always he knows he's under a direct order from me to say thanks, but no thanks at all times, because um, Stanford's one of those jobs that is just uh, on every single level. Um, it's outstanding. The people that we work with, the young people that we get a chance to recruit, um, the weather, the campus, um, and also having a chance to win. You know, we're coming off a difficult year, but at the same time. Um, we're we're coming off the best decade in the history of Stanford football, and I'm excited about the next decade. I mean, you said it was an easy decision. You, you told Coach Harbaugh if he gets that job, you're coming with him. What are some of the harder decisions? You know, career-wise, off the field, player management, everything. What decisions 
have you struggled with the most over this decade plus as head coach? Oh man, that's sometimes those are moment by moment. Um, you know, philosophically, when you're looking at, gosh, you know, here's what we would like to do on offense, defense, or special teams. And I mean, we're, we're, we recruit, I think we recruit our types of guys, but there are sometimes, man, sometimes we are big and physical and sometimes we're fast. So being able to be fluid in our scheme to say, what are we going to emphasize? And knowing that we have to be smart and we have to look at who we have and what we can do with those guys. And we had, when we had Toby Gerhardt, we had, 330 pound offensive lineman and we were running the ball downhill and then we had Christian McCaffrey we had uh, maybe uh, quicker more explosive offensive linemen so we're a little bit more single back uh, so we could still run the ball but doing it a different way and you know when we had Andrew Luck you know gosh we also had these big time tight ends so we became a, a big two and three tight end team and then the next year we didn't have those tight ends so we became a three receiver team so for me those are those things that philosophically we have to make subtle adjustments at all time um, never losing our mentality, but at the same time saying, hey, there's some things that we want to do, but if we don't have the guys to do it, then we need to do what our what our players do well and being very uh, player friendly. How much of that is, is out of your control? I guess I'm asking how much of those adjustments, how much that fluidity has to do with things that are outside of your program, whether that might be a Pac-12 coaching change. When, when UCLA goes from Jim Mora's offense to Chip Kelly's offense, does that change that much for you? Or, or is, you, is your staff just focused on uh, your roster, what's in your building, and not worrying so much about what other schemes around you are changing with the opponents, whether that's this year or next year? Do you, How much do you stay with just what you have and not worry about what else is happening around you? I would say 80% of it is, is just worrying about our roster and making sure we're putting our players in the best position to be successful, um, whether it's playing against playing a 34 because we've got big guys inside and, and great edge rushers or playing more nickel because we have – you know, uh, lighter guys and more more active and quick inside. Um, but then that t- that second 20% is kind of seeing what our conference is, is about and, and adjusting to that to where, yeah, we have a bunch of spread offenses in this in this conference, but they're different types of spread offenses, right? Uh, Arizona's spread offense is different than Chip Kelly's spread offense at UCLA and realizing that we have to do different things against those guys. And those are kind of week-to-week adjustments that we have to make. But the overall philosophy, though, is we got to make sure that we have enough defensive backs um, to cover and playing the playing in these nickel um, packages. And we are, are we able to play more man or can we play more zone? Um, and Chip Kelly is going to run the ball uh, quite a bit and make sure that we're still spread out, but we're still big enough inside to handle the inside running game. So um, it, those those that other twenty percent is still concerned with the the rest of the conference and in general making sure that we are built to handle um, the spread uh, athleticism that we're going to face. So with those difficult decisions, I know you said it's moment by moment, but but looking kind of beyond outside your program, what's your, your biggest worry about college football as a whole right now? I have a lot of those right now. Um, I would say at, at the top of the list, and, and, and some people take this as a negative, it's not meant to be negative. Um, I'm a Stanford man. I'm a structural guy. I'm a um, what are we doing that's setting a precedent for what we're going to do going forward? Um, the name, image, and likeness, how that's going to be implemented um, across different states with different rules. And we, we're going to need some kind of regulation that is not just going to come from the NCAA. It kind of has to come from Washington, D.C., where mo- many of us believe to where, okay, what are we, what are we doing to help these young people be college students? Because I think that gets lost so much and people talk about 
how much money conferences are making and how much money coaches are making and all these things that are being generated. We're talking so much about finances that sometimes we lose sight of what the actual mission is. The actual mission is to provide an environment for these young people to go to college and to play their sport and, and hopefully graduate and have a life beyond their sport. And it's not just about how much money we can get into their pockets. Now, at the same time, I've always been in, in favor of the name image likeness and whatever adjustments that we're going to make. Um, because you know, that's, that's, to me, that's right. That, that, um, not talking about paying athletes, but I'm talking about name image and likeness. So for me, they have these next three or four years of, of, of having something that is great for our student athletes, that is fair to our student athletes, but that also doesn't destroy college athletics. Um, because I think if we go down the wrong path and we make a couple of big, bad decisions, uh, college athletics because become semi-pro ball and semi-pro ball is not good for anybody. And I still think that we want these young people to be amateurs. We want them to be college kids. We want them to go to class and not just take online classes just to get out of school. We want them to actually leave these universities with an education and some marketable skills so that they can get jobs beyond playing football. What is your confidence level, I guess, that, that those improvements that you mentioned, the mission of kids not only playing sports but going to college, what is your confidence level that those will be improved in the right way? I mean, do you have confidence, like you said, in Washington, D.C., to, to make the right decision that is fair to the student-athletes? Honestly, right now, no. Um, but the NCAA is not big enough or strong enough. Um, it's not a slight. It's just the truth to deal with laws that are being passed in states. So when we have these state laws that we have to adhere to, um, but playing here in California is going to be different than playing in Florida, then how do we rectify that and, and still compete in the same, uh, in the same championships? So we need some uniformity, and that's where the NCAA has typically come in since its inception, is to help everybody play by the same rules. Well, now we're talking about laws. So we're talking about laws. The NCAA can't interfere with laws. Um, that's where we need some kind of a comprehensive, some comprehensive guidelines from um, our federal government to say, okay, all of you states, you kind of all have to play by the same rules. Um, here's what we think you should all do. And you can have some variance in there state to state, but I think we need to have some guardrails uh, for how we're going to operate going forward. Um, as far as name, image, and likeness is, is concerned. Does that, or maybe I should expand it to anything. Does anything keep you up at night regularly? Um, uh, not necessarily. I mean, I'm a, I'm a college football coach. So I don't sleep very well anyway, ever. Um, because there are always a million things that are always crossing our desks as far as, um, student athlete welfare, um, as far as their health, as far as their mental health, as far as, um, you know, on campus, um, sexual misconduct, um, all these things that are big things uh, in these young people's lives, handling social media and and respecting how big and powerful it is in these young people's lives and how it changes their mentality and affects their self-worth and um, affects their mental and emotional state. Like all these things are huge that we're dealing with more than just playing football, more than just going to school. Um, I heard somebody call this, which I agree with 100%, college is the second puberty. I mean, these young people are going through a lot and they're changing and going and becoming uh, full-fledged adults um, and make sure that we have a proper environment in these college uh, campuses to help that process and not hinder that process. And specifically looking 
at the Pac-12. You know, there's been a lot of criticism around the Pac-12, especially financial-wise, and I know you mentioned that that should only be one piece of it, and there should be more attention on other things, but but still, do you like the direction that, that the Pac-12 is going right now? Uh, I do. I think we have a, a lot of things that we need to, to do better. I think the bottom line is um, when you win more, it looks like you're doing better. Um, so on the basketball side, getting more teams in the tournament is always better. On the football side, getting someone in the in the uh, in the playoff um, is better. Um, getting our teams um, ranked in the top ten, to, uh, getting more national exposure from our quote unquote media partners um, to to make sure that we're not just playing our games in the middle of the night, that we're playing our games during the day where more people can see them. So um, I think these are things that we've been grappling with and battling, um, and I do believe that we've had some really positive. Uh, influences on some changes that that have happened and some I think that are going to happen in our conference. Um, but there's no make, make no mistake about it. I think there's some uh, a, a lot of improvement that we can make. You mentioned the kickoff time, so you're not playing you know late at night. Now that we've had, I'm not sure exactly when this proposal came out, but there's been a little bit of time to chew on it. The, the possibility of playing very very early Pac-12 games, so you get those games on national TV before all the other ones comes out. What are your thoughts on that? Do you have any interest in playing those really early morning games? Zero. None at all. We have a guy here named Dr. Dement, who is one of the foremost authorities on sleep, uh, especially as it pertains to athletes. And early morning competitions are not great for athletes. Um, they, they, these are young people. They don't go to bed at 9 o'clock. Um, they go to bed late. Um, so to have an early morning competition with a lot on the line um, is not beneficial to the athlete's uh, performance, and um, we can give you all the all the anecdotal evidence that you'll need. Um, every time that we've gone to the Midwest or to the East Coast and played a morning game, we have done poorly. Um, we've squeaked away in one one or two, but for some reason, you know, the, their bodies are not apt to get up and perform at a high level in the morning. So I don't think that's going to be great for the student athletes' welfare or, or their performance. So. I'm in favor of playing games in the middle of the day and not worrying about how we just get the most eyeballs. Um, let people choose. You know, I don't mind our game going up against Alabama playing somebody or Clemson playing something. The, somebody, the, the, their fans will watch their games. Our fans will watch our games. And so we don't have to push ourselves out of those middle-of-the-day windows. Um, I think we can have a couple games at night, which is great. But we don't need all of them at night. We can play during the course of the day and, um, you know, have our young people be able to perform when the sun is is shining. And looking back on last season, finishing the season four and eight, uh, fewest wins for you as a head coach, even going back to 2007, that first year under Jim Harbaugh. I mean, what did that feel like after after reeling off so many nine, ten, eleven, twelve win seasons? What did it feel like to to only finish four and eight? Yeah, we had, we had a rough year. We had a lot of injuries. We played a lot of young guys. Um, there were bright spots here and there. I thought we played outstandingly against Washington. Um, I thought we played really well in spurts, um, but uh, we we didn't achieve uh, our goals. And there are a lot of hard looks. We had to look at some of the things we did. Uh, like I said, you know, playing playing three offensive linemen that are freshmen, the true freshmen, that was difficult. Um, I thought that guys played well for freshmen, um, but there were some things that we could do a lot better. So I think it affected the running game, affected the pass protection game. Um, we had some some injuries on in defense backfield, some rotation we had to go through there, and end up uh, probably giving up more big plays than we wanted to. Um, 
you know, we had two two linebackers, inside linebackers that played really well, but one was an outside linebacker and one was a safety. So we were playing two guys playing a position they never played before. So we had a lot of moving parts. Um, but what I'm excited about is um, we're healthy now. A lot of those guys are were injured or back and healthy. Um, I think we've recruited extremely well. I'm excited about the speed and size and athleticism of our team. And, um, you know, we have a little, uh, a little uh, as I like to say, we have a little gur uh, in our bellies right now. All right, Coach, congrats on that 2020 signing class, putting a bow on that this week. Another top 25 class, like you mentioned, number 21 in 24-7 sports, third in the Pac-12, now looking ahead to 2021, now looking ahead to that 2020 season. Hope all goes well in the coming weeks with spring ball. Getting fired up. Best of luck this season. Uh, thanks again for dropping by. I really appreciate your time today.